This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Eye on Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now, your host, Jessica Clement. Welcome to Ion Washington. I am your host, Jessica Clement, and I am joined today by Dan Chenock, Executive Director for the IBM Center for the Business of Government. In this role, Dan oversees all of the center's activities in connecting research to practice to benefit government, and Dan has also spent many years in the government as well. Thank you for having me, Jesse. Thanks so much for being here, Dan. Um, Every month, Ion Washington looks at federal employee and retiree policy initiatives in Washington. We examine proposals Congress, the administration, and agencies are considering, and which ones have a possibility to become reality. Dan, you and I recently reconnected when I had some questions about federal regulations, an area that certainly doesn't get as much attention as legislation. But first things first, let's talk about the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Tell me about it. So the Center for the Business of Government is a research organization within the IBM Corporation that is independent from the business. So we don't, uh, we're not uh, selling IBM or advocating on behalf of IBM uh, directly. We are working to provide research that benefits government leaders, stakeholders, and influencers on issues that government executives, political and career uh, have told us is important to them to know more about. And so we, we kind of put what they tell us into a research agenda that we, have, that we have that lives on our website, www.businessofgovernment.org. And um, we actually send that research agenda out to academics in the U.S. and around the world. And they give us ideas for, here's how the government could solve the problems that have been identified as needing innovation um, by these government leaders. And then we look at, and we basically pick the best ones. Um, so we fund about one in 10 proposals, and we write, we issue about maybe 15 or so reports a year. Um, some of those reports are done by academic experts, many of them actually university professors who are experts in the field. Some we do in partnership with uh, other organizations like the National Academy of Public Administration and the Partnership for Public Service. Um, but we always try to come out with papers that are both well-researched and documented and also practical and actionable and can be picked up by a government leader and, and basically create an agenda for that person. So... Mostly research is what I hear you saying. Are you, do you guys have um, any registered lobbyists, any advocacy activities, or it's just, we're going to do the research and then we're going to tell, nope. we're going to give it to Congress. We don't lobby at all. Okay. Um, we don't advocate other than the advocacy that data and research shows is the best practice for government. We do have an, a podcast of our own. Uh, it's a weekly podcast also on Federal News Network, hosted by Michael Keegan. It's called the Business of Government Hour. Um, and then we do a, a lot of um, a blogging on topics of the current topics of the day. We're usually blogging two to three times a week, um, speaking, writing, working with partner organizations. Uh, and uh, we just passed our 25th anniversary. Uh, and as part of that, we wrote a new book, our 24th book in 25 <laughs> years called Transforming the Business of Government. That's great. Um, And what qualifies you to be the executive director of this organization? Tell uh, the listeners a little bit about what you did when you worked for the federal government. Sure. Thanks, Jesse, for asking. So I was in uh, on the Hill for a couple of years after college. And then I went to graduate school at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, where, by the way, my daughter 
is now in the same degree program that I was in. Um, and uh, after that, I uh, went to the Office of Management and Budget and I worked for the, you mentioned regulations earlier, mm-hmm. I worked for the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, which for those of your listeners that don't know about OIRA, it is the part of OMB that oversees all um, proposed and final rules and, and regulatory processes issued by federal agencies. Uh, and also under a statute called the Paperwork Reduction Act, OIRA has to approve anytime the government collects information from the public to make sure that it's minimally burdensome and maximally useful uh, to the public. And so I it worked there. And then the other um, function that OIRA had at the time was to oversee the information technology policy part of the government. So those of you that follow the OMB org chart now probably know the Office of the Federal Chief Information Officer. So when I ran that function at OMB, it was within OIRA, uh, it was, and I was the, the chief for the function. And then I actually helped start up the, um, what's now the Office of the Federal CIO, uh, and uh, then left OMB having, uh, having uh, done that for a few years. Uh, so the job that I have now is, uh, there's, there's a bit of an OMB tradition. The, the, my predecessor was Jonathan Brule, who had, was for many years the, the dean of, man, of sort of management issues at OMB. And so um, when Jonathan uh, chose to retire, IBM asked uh, if I, having had that OMB kind of experience, would be interested in in coming on board. And I uh, happily accepted. And so here I am. Oh, no, I'm going to choose to believe it was a tough decision to leave government. This is this is Federal News Network after all, Dan. So the, the leaving government part was well before I took the IBM role. I actually went to okay. SRA, the company, uh, before uh, right after government, worked with Rennie DiPentima, um, who's very well known for uh, being a successful executive coming out of government and for uh, teaching others coming out of government to do the same. And at the time, um, I, want, I very much wanted to stay involved in government. I chaired uh, NIST Security and Privacy Advisory Board and have been chairs of other advisory committees. I'm a fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration and a SAGE with the Partnership for Public Service. So I, I try to stay engaged very deliberately uh, in, in what government does. But um, actually, we, we were having our third child at the time. And so um, my wife said, I don't have enough time to have three kids, three little kids and a job at the same time. So um, uh, I went off to, to, from the government um, and uh, have been working in and with government since. That's great. Well, thank you for your public service. And I know you and I worked a lot, I think, in some of your roles with the Senior Executives Association when I was over at NARF. So it's been great to reconnect with you. And have you walk me through what, um, you know, things on OIRA's website mean and how I can request meetings <laughs> to talk about regulations? So one of the hot topics right now is artificial intelligence, right? Everybody's talking about it. At my own organization, we're trying to figure out how we work with AI like do we embrace do we embrace it or do we highlight all the shortcomings it could possibly have when planning a trip for the average traveler and i think a lot of people are having these conversations these days ai is like the thing to talk about so i was looking at the center's website and it appears that many federal agencies are embracing ai and i think i also saw reference to an executive order on it which was admittedly a little new to me. So what sort of work is the IBM Center for the Business of Government doing on AI and how does it relate to federal employees in the federal government? Sure. So let's uh, talk first principles. Artificial intelligence, uh, while many people associate it with sort of, you know, a fear of what could happen in machines for late, mm-hmm. is really 
um, a, a continuation of technology involved in making analytics more accessible, easier to find data, easier to put together data sets, and, and uh, easier to sort of um, review data sets across that you, you used to have to do by hand, right? You, got, you get one data set and you have, have a bunch of papers and you get another data set and you, you analyze it for weeks and weeks and basically teach the computer through a set of algorithms to look through that data and array it in a way that you would have done so quickly. Uh, and then uh, enable you to see where are the outliers, you know, because typically when you do analysis of a problem, 80% of the time things are working just fine and you just need to kind of record that. And as an analyst with the government or somebody who's providing services, you want to really focus on the 20% of people or 20% of small businesses, let's say, that are in need. So um, as AI evolved, especially um, starting in sort of, the, I guess, about six years ago, there were, the government was doing applications and we did a, a paper with the Partnership for Public Service called The Future Has Begun, um, where we, we looked at examples of how AI was being implemented by agencies and in the workplace. And I'll point out uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics of all agencies, um, which does you know, a lot of research looking at labor data, health and safety, workplace productivity, um, uh, you know, job numbers, et cetera, uh, unemployment uh, and reemployment. And they have, you know, tremendously skilled analysts who are overwhelmed by the amount of data uh, on the U.S. economy that they are dealing with every day. And their uh, deputy commissioner, who was acting commissioner as well at the time, a guy named Bill Wyatrowski, um, actually worked with his team to put in place some early artificial intelligence algorithms that made their job a lot easier and enable them to kind of sift through the issues so they could see, oh, we know there's a problem with um, with work, with sort of workplace safety in these three areas or these three occupations, and let's look for the commonalities so we can try to help people understand and do their research about you know what's causing that. Um, How do they so know to trust that data? I think that's what has people a little bit on edge, right? Like you're asking, you're asking a computer to give you the best. And I'll be honest, I use ChatGPT to try and come up with a theme for a friend's fiftieth birthday. Um, and this friend drives very, very fast and chat GPT gave me some great taglines that we could use. Um, but I just, that's easy, right? That's like a no brainer, right? So, somebody thinking about things that I couldn't come up with on my own, but when it comes to like analyzing government data, like how do you know that that's to, the, to trust it? So first of all, that's, a, that's sort of the, the, um, the, the golden center of, um, of artificial intelligence analysis uh, and having good data. It's always important to have good data, whether you're doing an analysis by hand, by an Excel spreadsheet, or by an AI-based algorithm. Um, it's so, so sort of the provenance of the data, making sure that the data represents the state of the world and doesn't itself introduce bias okay. into the into, um, situation, making sure that people about whom uh, data is recorded in, in government uh, databases that, and then uh, decisions are made based on that data, have the ability to access that data and correct it. These are basic principles of data policy that have been in place really since the Privacy Act of 1974, which enshrined the, a, a right of access and redress uh, around data uh, in the government. And, and it's certainly true in an AI perspective. The last point I'll make here is that you people have probably heard, started to hear, hear the term generative AI or gen AI, which mm -hmm. is really what ChatGPT is all about. So there, uh, the AI itself is creating a document, um, and uh, it's really, really important 
to, um, to be able to know what the data underlying data is for that document to, to be able to test um, uh, the training of the data as it's used before it's put into, uh, into practice so that uh, you don't get results. And, and the field is evolving. Uh, you know, Gen AI is, um, is something that has tremendous potential, but as you pointed out, you know, it doesn't always get everything right. It, it hallucinates is the term of art. Um, and, I and like sort of that. Make, um, so we actually just had a roundtable discussion last week that the Partnership for Public Service and we co-hosted where we talked about the ethical imperative of using data properly uh, when AI is involved in delivering benefits uh, from government agencies to citizens. So it's, it's, a, it's a challenge, it's an opportunity, uh, and one that can be, you know, it's not, it's, the AI is here to stay. We know it's going to be used. How do we best make it work for the American people uh, and mitigate its risks? Um, you know, you, when you say federal benefits, my ears always perk up, right? That's where I feel like I was a subject matter expert for a long time. So um, I love continuing to talk about it. And we're going to keep going on the AI discussion, but we have to take a quick break. My guest today is Dan Chenock, Executive Director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I am Jessica Clement, and you're listening to Ion Washington on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ion Washington on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jessica Clement, and my guest today is Dan Chenock, Executive Director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. So let's continue on with that AI discussion. Um, one of the reports on the website that grabbed my attention was on how AI can improve tax administration. Everyone wants to make it wants it to be easier to file their taxes right, to get their refund faster. Tell me more um, about this report and its recommendations and how it would affect those listening to the podcast today. Sure. Well, that report resulted from a roundtable that we held in conjunction with the American University COGID School of Business Tax Policy Center. And the report was authored by its director, Caroline Bruckner, and uh, a research uh, assistant of hers named Colin Coyle. And the roundtable was actually keynoted by the IRS commissioner, Danny Werfel, and involved tax leaders from the U.S. and around the world. Uh, and uh, we took the results of that. Caroline combined it with some of her research and put out the paper. And really, it showed the promise of, of AI to improve taxpayer experience um, in terms of uh, how they actually move through uh, the process of both filing their taxes and also engaging with the IRS um, in, in, in you know, asking questions, that sort of thing. And then also the operations of the agency in more quickly targeting where are the issues, let's say, in auditing, uh, in um, understanding trends in terms of, of, of tax administration over time. And other countries have successfully incorporated this. We put it out in the report, uh, so the, an example from Spain, where they um, put together a chatbot that greatly increased the satisfaction of citizens in, in Spain who were engaging with the Spanish tax authority. Uh, so we, in the report, we have a series of recommendations. And then, uh, in fact, actually, we're, we're about to do a second uh, a roundtable where we're engaging tax leaders again from U.S. and around the world. We've got uh, tax leaders from four continents um, coming together to really kind of further discuss how to to address this. So there's more to come on this topic. Great. Would you say you are optimistic about 
the IRS employing any of the recommendations you guys put out? Do you think more research still needs to be done other than these four continents coming together to learn from one another? What do you think are the next steps here internally in the U.S.? So the IRS has already started to move down the modernization road. The, the commissioner issued the IRS 10-year modernization blueprint uh, shortly after he arrived. They're involved in a number of national and international discussions, working with the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development on um, you know, how to develop tax administration effectively with new technology, including artificial intelligence. You've seen um, the IRS introduce new functionality to their services like the direct file pilot. You've seen them introduce new con- uh, customer service capabilities among IRS help desk agents. And you've seen them recently announced things like we're going to target, you know, certain types of high income taxpayers um, because we know that they're um, basically the tax gap, the gap between what they owe and what they actually pay uh, is largest in certain populations. And AI can help to, um, again, sort of separate the wheat from the chaff much more quickly. And this is part of the ethical imperatives that that we um, have researched as part of best practice. Humans need to be the final decision maker. It's not like in the IRS or any other agency, there's going to be you know, AI going to ma- be making high stakes decisions, but it, it does augment people and the, and, and the processes that people use to analyze data and make decisions and enable them to make better decisions. That's if it, and that's, again, if it's used properly. Um, and we talk also about, you know, the risks that could accrue uh, in the use of AI and how to mitigate those risks. And that the, those are real for AI, just like they are with any other technology. That's great. Um, one of the other things that caught my eye on the center's website was preparing the government for future shocks, like another pandemic. Working in travel policy now, I can tell you we've had a lot of discussion on how we prepare for the next catastrophic event. Um, And in particular, you know, the conversation we're having here is how travel agencies aren't left behind if something were to happen again, when the more visible businesses, the more tangible ones that people see and feel every day, the airlines, the hotels, the restaurants, you know, are really dominating the conversation, you know, so we've spent a lot of time internally talking about what policies we want to promote in the future to lay that groundwork should something like this ever happen again. So I was really struck by your report on future shocks. So tell me a little bit more about this. So we worked on that with the National Academy for Public Administration uh, and the IBM Institute for Business Value, which is another research organization in IBM that works with other sectors aside from government. Um, and we we basically started with the premise that these kinds of shocks used to be thought of as black swans are becoming uh, much more gray, much more common mm-hmm. and much larger in magnitude uh, and um, uh, sort of how, how how they stretch across. And so we we basically had the premise, you know, the pandemic was a significant development. It laid bare um, risks to the supply chain. Uh, it, you know, you saw, you know, the, the, the climate, how the climate reacted during the pandemic when people stopped driving and flying. You saw, you know, change, positive changes to the environment uh, and that sort of thing. And now, you know, you're obviously we're in a, a, a world of global climate change and very significant issues there. So we, we took a look and divided the world up into a number of different domains where shocks could be uh, a major catastrophes for countries and both individually and and for regions and and really for the global commons as well. And we brought together roundtables of experts from the U.S. and also abroad 
and we had a series of and of sort of convenings where we've talked through the cybersecurity um, potential for shock there and how do you respond, the climate potential, the um, the supply chain potential, the workforce potential, uh, and um, we then sort of put them together in a series of reports uh, that culminated in a final report that was presented at the uh, National Academy for Public Administration annual meeting, where we um, we rolled out the final report is written by former GAO Director of Strategic Issues Chris Mim, mm -hmm. um, uh, was the primary author, and we had former federal CIO Tony Scott contributing and um, supply chain leader Rob Hanfield. So we had a number of contributors to the report, uh, and we've really gotten really interesting traction from governments who say, you know, this these are important lessons both for our work within these different domains like supply chain protection or, or cyber protection. Also, very and very importantly, we looked across the domains to see, usually there's a, if there's a cyber crisis, all the cyber professionals do a really good job sort of getting around it and, and, start, and you know, sort of responding quickly. But they don't necessarily share that learning with the supply chain community or the emergency management community. And there's learnings that can go across. And we were very much cognizant of uh, the imperative to kind of fill that gap across these kinds of domains. And so we've had a, a real good response as a result. We're now in the second year of the initiative and we're starting to be much more practical, working with governments um, to collect examples of where they're putting the principles from the report into practice and convening additional meetings, predominantly around how countries can work together moving forward. That's great. What I hear from you is a lot of optimism and interest in this, which is great because I feel like a, like I feel like most people think that we're we're past the pandemic, right? I mean, people are still getting sick and they're testing positive for COVID, but like life as we know it is largely back to normal for for most people. And I'm having a hard time talking about it, you know, in my day job because it's like, well, we don't want to talk about it anymore. We just like want to move on. So like I'm personally very happy to hear what you just said and people um still wanting to figure this out so it doesn't what that we take the lessons that we learned over the course of the last four years, should something ever happen again? That, that's really one the, great. One of the goals of the report was to say, what are the capabilities that government can strengthen in good times so that if the bad times recur, there's a much faster time to respond. So again, FEMA and the emergency management community have sort of this down uh, to a science where they exercise frequently, they have communications protocols, that's not necessarily shared across domains. And so we're, we're trying to help governments build up those, those capabilities to do exactly what you described. Great, it'd be great if Congress could learn from them as well as not waiting until the very last minute to do anything, which brings us to our next topic. What a segue. It's the last week of February, so I have to talk about the continuing resolution. As our listeners probably know, the current CR was laddered, meaning some agency funding runs out this Friday, March 1st, and the rest on the following Friday, March 8th. Dan, before we dive into how Congress moves forward this week, wasn't terribly optimistic by reports I read this morning, but before we tackle that, why don't you tell our listeners why continuing resolutions are just terrible, terrible policy? Well, it so happens that our center wrote a report on this topic Get by out. a leading <laughs> scholar, um, Phil Joyce, who teaches at the University of Maryland, one of the only empirical studies of CRs. Um, uh, over time, and it, it affects, uh, you know, the direct operation of the government, obviously, because employees are sent are sent home, services are not provided, except for services that are exempt from the shutdown. 
um, and even those employees don't get paid. Uh, now, in every shutdown for the last 27 years, and there has been a shutdown every year, I'm sorry, a CR, for every CR for the last 27 years, there's been a CR. Many of those have resulted in very short shutdowns, and a few have resulted in shutdowns that last a week or longer. Um, but they basically happen, and then the government always kind of provides the back pay uh, to government employees. Um, a lot of the work that gets done by contractors to the government doesn't necessarily get repaid, especially yep. contracts that are not firm fixed price. Um, and so uh, also the, the morale uh, to the workforce, you know, takes a hit. Um, the people that don't receive services, uh, especially in a longer shutdown, can start to uh, start to, to sort of see that. And then it takes it actually takes money to shut down the government. You have to send out a lot of notices. You have to provide communications protocols. And then it takes money to get people back to work. Um, so there's costs of actually executing the CR that are that are uh, sort of a, you know, basically like a wasted resource because if you um, those costs never would have had to have been incurred had the CR not occurred. The, the government's money could have continued to be spent on authorized services uh, under law. So there's a lot of different reasons why CRs uh, are not a good idea. I mean, it's it's terrible policy. Like you know, I listen to politicians pontificate all the time. It is my job, right? Um, and I have heard in my nearly two decades now of lobbying and being in Washington, D.C., you know, we need to run government like a business. We need to run government like a business. No business would operate the way Congress funds the federal government. And it's not only detrimental for the morale. I'm on a soapbox now. I'm sorry. Detrimental for the morale of the employees, but all the services that aren't getting provided and then all the back work that needs to get done, which is, I think it's Dan, billions, billions in lost productivity, billions in direct losses um, to the country every time there's a shutdown or even the threat of a shutdown. Because I can tell you, you know, agencies are now going into shutdown prep, right? Which means other jobs aren't getting done, right? On, in terms of the impact on the people who are, you know, who elect their representatives uh, to be accountable, it basically delays any choices that, that Congress makes and that the administration can then implement because the decisions in a CR are delayed. So Congress talks in a particular year about what are the big issues that we face in for the transportation department or the or housing and urban development or the small business administration. But if there's a CR, those decisions get delayed until the CR is resolved. And sometimes they basically get delayed the whole year because Congress just can't agree. So they do a whole year continuing resolution, which could be, you know, it's one of the scenarios people are talking about now. So in all in honesty, addition, that's all my of, prediction. Yeah, I think that's addition, what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh, we could keep going. I feel like I do this every month. We get on the topic and want to keep going. And that's it for our show today. Thank you so much to my guest, Dan Chenock of the executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I really appreciate you taking your time to tell us what the center is working on, how federal agencies can improve their services. It was great. It was great to see you again, Dan. Great to see you too, Jesse. Always happy to talk to you. I am Jessica Clement, and you've been listening to Eye on Washington on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Eye on Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and all of our past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.